Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Series 2 of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that delves into the murky depths of crime fiction and TV crime drama. Regular listeners will know that in Series 1, we managed to snaffle some of the biggest names in crime fiction from page and screen, and Series 2 is going to be bigger and better, even if I do say so myself. And I do say so myself, because I know what's coming. My name's Mark Billingham, and as usual, in every episode, I'll be joined by major figures from both worlds to discuss the ins, the outs, the ups and downs of these two hugely popular industries, from BAFTAs to flops, from being carried shoulder-high around the world's most glamorous literary festivals to hearing your words echo around a damp library in Slough in front of two old ladies and a dog. Now, if you've listened to us before, welcome back. You know the drill. But if this is your first time tasting the murderous delights of a stab in the dark, you're equally as welcome. And if you haven't heard us before, there are a dozen episodes waiting for you to catch up with on iTunes and other podcast providers. We're kicking off Series 2 with one of the world's best-known and best-loved crime authors. Now, can you remember what happened in 1987? I shall tell you. That year saw Hilda Ogden make her last appearance in Coronation Street. Sylvester McCoy became the seventh Doctor Who, Rick Astley hit the number one spot, and BBC weatherman Michael Fish claimed on air that we shouldn't be worried about any hurricanes. We all know how that one turned out. But something else happened in 1987. A young Scottish writer named Ian Rankin released a novel called Knots and Crosses. Over the ensuing three decades, Ian has sold tens of millions of copies of his books around the globe, and 2017 sees the 30th anniversary of his most popular and enduring character, D.I. John Rebus. We're going to be talking to Ian about that landmark, as well as the screen adaptations of his books, his extraordinary work ethic, and of course, we'll be asking him for his top recommendations for crime books and crime TV shows. Oh, and I think we might just talk to him about music. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. So welcome to the podcast, Ian. Just to set the scene for listeners, we are in leafy, lovely Chipping Norton. Um, we've probably got David Cameron and Jeremy Clarkson. Only a stone's throw away, I wish. Uh, and we're in my hotel. Now, before listeners start thinking this is some cheap attempt to get lurid publicity, uh, I should point out that we're here ahead of Ian's event at the Chipping Norton Literary Festival. So do you still enjoy this kind of thing? I mean... Events not being in my hotel, obviously. Well, I, I enjoy events with you, Mark. Obviously, that's <laughs> the, the only reason I'm doing it. You know. No, but you're still, you, you know, you're still going around the world doing festivals, doing events. Yeah, but you know yourself. I mean, it does get pretty fatiguing. I, I mean, this year I've done uh, states. I did three weeks in the states in February, with all the weather you could have, and then Germany in March, and next week I'm flying off to New Zealand and Australia for another three weeks, and. The travelling does get a bit tiring. And the other problem I've got is, unlike some writers we could probably think of, I can't write when I'm on the road. Mm. I've got to be sitting at home yeah. with the biscuits and the coffee. Yeah. So I don't get anything done when I'm travelling. And your stereo. 
and my music playing <laughs> quietly in the background. So this is a big this is a big year for you and for Rebus. Thirty years. Is it something that's been sort of coming towards you that you've been thinking about for a while? Not really, because um, you know, when he, I mean, after twenty years, I thought that's pretty much it. You know, I thought um, he's hit he's hit retirement age. He hit sixty, and exit music was supposed to be the final book. And I thought that's it. I've waved a cheery farewell to him. Um, um, bringing him back was a gamble, I suppose, but. Uh, how much more can I do with him? I mean, you can't imagine him in his electric wheelchair in the care home, whizzing around solving the mystery of the soft-boiled egg. <laughs> I mean, really. Who nicked the biscuits? Yeah, and he's got all these health issues now that he didn't have 20, 30 years ago. So, I don't know. You know, there's never been a plan. You know, I never thought that he would stick around. And so I'm always slightly surprised when I get another idea for a Rebus novel. Well, we'll talk, we'll talk in, in a bit more detail about the latest Rebus novel, Rather Be the Devil in a bit. Um, but, you know, you knew this one when you were writing it was going to be the one that was the 30th year and all that kind of stuff. So did that make writing this book any different, any harder? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, every book is different from the book before it. Um, the one thing about this book was my wife had persuaded me that Rebus's health should be catching up with him. And she's been saying that to me for several books now, that surely... He's had a pretty lucky run, um, and with his lifestyle, something's got to happen. So that was what you know. That was what brought this book into sharp focus for me was that it's a book about mortality, I suppose. Right. And for me, as much as for him, you know, none of us are getting any younger, Mark. Um, and you know, looking back at thirty years, going through the old reviews and and the rejection letters and everything, it's been really that's been a lot of fun. Going back to my diary from 1986-87 and looking at all the people who either gave me a terrible review or who turned the book down and some of them are going to be named and shamed at the Rebus Festival because one of the letters I got from my agent saying right I sent it to six publishers the first Rebus novel Um, five have turned it down already Um, and here are the names of the five who've turned it down that letter will be on display during the Rebus Festival in Edinburgh at the end of June (laughs) Are those people still working in publishing? Who knows? (laughs) I mean most of those publishing houses do still exist Uh, so so that'll be fun Um, The people who gave me bad reviews I don't know I don't know whether to put my pages in my diary up there because mostly it's just unrepeatable swear words followed by the name of the person who gave me a bad review Well let's go go right back to the beginning then You, you did start doing this stupidly young I mean, we, you know, <laughs> yeah, relatively. Yeah, yeah. Were, you, were you always a writer? Did you always want to be a writer? I mean, what were your literary influences? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was. I was uh, right from the get-go when I was a little kid, you know. Uh, precious few books in the house. My parents weren't readers. They probably read one book each a year on summer holiday. Um, so there weren't many books, but I was just addicted to storytelling, I suppose, to, to, to narrative. So comics, you know, a cheap, affordable literacy. God bless DC Thompson. So the Dandy, the Beano, the Victor, the Hotspur, Commando Comics, all that stuff. I was addicted to them and started trying to do my own. I'd get bits of paper and fold them in half and draw little stick people and have little adventures on the page. Um, and I, you know, and then got into pop music and sat in my bedroom in my quite safe, tiny wee coal mining village in Fife and dreamed up a band called Demi Buzz, and I was the lead singer, Ian Caput, and I designed their album sleeves, and I wrote their lyrics, and I took them on tour and everything, and, you know, I was always doing it, and I always, I think I always would. Um, and then, you know, got into sort of poetry and prose, and had to break the terrible news to my parents at 17 that I wasn't going to be an accountant or anything, I was going to go to university to study literature, mm. and that was a blow to them, I think. They thought, you know, you're working class, you go to uni to get a trade. Get a, get, good trade, boy. get a good trade, you know, <laughs> accountancy or dentistry, right? You know, something where you can make a bit of money. And actually, we had one uncle in Bradford, uh, he's still alive, 
And he owned his own house and he owned his own car and he was about the only person I knew who did. So I was actually going to study accountancy. Again, going through my diaries, I found all this. And then, you know, I had this epiphany when I only got a C for my higher economics. That's like a, an A-level right. in Scotland. And I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I going to go to uni to do economics when I'm not very good at it? Just to get a job. Um, and that was when I decided I'm going to do English. So you, st- you start writing a couple of novels, then Knots and Crosses. So where, where did Rebus come from? Where was that spark of inspiration that here we are 30 years later, you know, he's still going strong? Well, I mean, he just jumped into my head. I mean, it was literally the day that I went into the offices of Polygon Books, which at that time was a tiny outfit run by Edinburgh University Students Association. And they'd published Jim, James Kelman's first book and had quite a bit of success with it. So they'd taken a punt on some other books, and one of them was The Flood by Ian Rankin. And I went in to sign the contract, went back to my student digs, sat down, and the idea of this story just jumped into my head. Um, and I've still got the original page of notes that I wrote in an A4 folder. It just said, um, somebody's being tormented by someone from their past, they're getting sent picture puzzles that are supposed to mean something to them, they've forgotten, they've, bl- they've, they've kind of blocked it. Um, so it's going to come back eventually. The main character may be a cop. Just maybe. Maybe a cop, yeah. And because there were puzzles, is that where the name came yeah. from? Yeah, uh, Rebus is a picture puzzle. And because I was a smart arse English lit student, I was a PhD student by that stage doing semiotics and uh, deconstruction and what have you, I thought, yeah, we'll call him Inspector Rebus, Inspector Puzzle. It uh, could have been Inspector Scrabble. I, mean, I know, it could have been Inspector <laughs> 30 <Anagram>. years later. Anagram. <laughs> yeah. you know, Alistair Nagram. Uh, running around solving puzzles. And it was meant to be a one-off. You know, I mean, I didn't know anything about the police. I didn't read crime fiction at that time, which I think makes me fairly unique in the annals of crime fiction. Every other writer I know was a big fan of the genre before they started writing it, yourself included. But I just didn't. You know, I'd read Shaft, Ernest Tideman's book, because I wasn't old enough to go and see the film. And I'd read The Godfather, Ditto, because I wasn't old enough to be let in to see the film. So I'd read a few crime novels, but I wasn't a fan of... I'd never tried Agatha Christie. My big sister was a fan of Agatha Christie, um, but, you know, that puzzle-style book didn't appeal, and I thought I was writing a dark, gothic, Scottish novel. But then you discover people like Lawrence Block and James Elroy. Yeah, quite early on I started, I mean, Ruth Rendell, you know, going to the the bookstores and there's your book on the shelf in the crime section, you say, well, who else is there? Ruth Rendell, you think, okay, I'll try one of her books. She was probably the first... British writer I picked up on. Um, the American stuff, very early on. Uh, Lawrence Block loved Scudder. And um, the figure of Cafferty in the Rebus novels is based on Mick Ballou from uh, the, the Matt Scudder novels. The Butcher. The yeah, Butcher's yeah. yeah, and the kind of yeah, bowling ball, the bag. Kind of, yeah, just a, a great character. Anyway, um, and James Elroy, pretty much all the Jameses. You know, James Crumley, James Elroy. All the, James all Lee the Burke, Jameses. James Lee Burke, James Salas. You know, there were loads of them, and they were all terrific writers. James Thompson, of course. Um, and I liked the American stuff. I liked urban, I liked the noir, I liked it quite dark and gritty. I wasn't a fan of the sort of classical English detective story. Uh, I was more a fan of the, the kind of stuff that I would go and see at the cinema, you know, yeah. any French Connection type stuff. So had you, had you already decided you were going to write more Rebus books then? No, no. I mean, after the first Rebus book came out, I, st- I did a spy novel. I wanted to be John le Carre. Uh, and I wrote a spy novel called uh, Watchmen. And then I thought, no, I'm going to write a big techno thriller. I'm going to become a kind of techno thriller writer. I was looking for anything that would make me money so I could become a full-time writer. So I did uh, Westwind, which was a really terrible book. And my editor, who'd stuck by me during those two books and also had been the guy who'd signed up the first Rebus novel, uh, Ewan Cameron at Bodley Head, said, whatever happened to that guy Rebus? I liked him. 
And I thought, oh, maybe I'll do another one then. Okay. That was it. It was just him saying, I liked that guy, Rebus. And nobody got that the first one was meant to be literature. <laughs> uh, um, and basically a retelling of Jekyll and Hyde. So I thought, okay, I'll do one called Hyde and Seek. And I'll have a club in it called Hyde's, H-Y-D-E apostrophe S, where rich men will go to get their jollies. Um, and I'll, I'll name the characters after characters in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that was the second Rebus novel. And they still didn't get it. Still didn't get it. No. <laughs> I think one reviewer in the New York Times, I think Marlon Stacey or Stasio might have got it, but nobody else did. And by then I was, I was married and living in London. I was no longer a student. And because I was living in London and didn't much like it, I thought, hey, I can bring Rebus down here and he won't like it either. So I brought him in for a third book set in London called uh, Tooth and Nail. And that was it, three books. I thought, well, I'm stuck with this guy now. Yeah. And by then I'd sort of fallen in love with him a bit. I mean, as a, as a character, I, I wanted to know more about him, which meant spending more time with him, which meant writing more books about him. And also I'd figured out that a detective was a really good way of looking at the world, you know, looking at society, looking at the social issues, looking at problems, uh, taking on big moral questions. So I thought, right, great. As long as the kinds of stories I want to tell and the kinds of things I want to explore can be done in the detective novel in Edinburgh, why do anything else? Well, it's, it's obviously impossible to talk about Ruth without talking about Edinburgh, um, which is obviously a, a character in itself in, uh, across all the books. So was that strong sense of place really important to you when you started out? I think so. I mean, you know, I, I was using my stories about Edinburgh to try and make sense of the place because I didn't hardly knew it. When I went there to go to university, I really didn't know Edinburgh at all. I'd probably been there a dozen times in my life, um, although it was only 30 miles away from where I lived, where I grew up. Um, so to make sense of the place, I started writing about it, poetry to start with, and then short stories and eventually novels. And it's that kind of, it's a TARDIS of a city. I mean, it's really small, half a million people. And it's enclosed, you know, it's got sort of sea to the north and the south and big hills to the, um, sea to the north and the east and big hills to the south. So it can't really grow much bigger than it is. And yet it contains multitudes. It seems to contain all these amazing stories and versions of itself. And it is very attractive to writers, you know. And Kate Atkinson's Edinburgh isn't my Edinburgh. Um, and and uh, Val McDermott's Edinburgh wouldn't be my Edinburgh. And Alexander McCall Smith's And Alexander McCall Smith's. <laughs> Uh, and all these writers writing these versions of Edinburgh are being sustained by it and uh, and trying to make sense of it. Well, it, it, the books have seen Edinburgh and Scotland, you know, you reflected that change quite a lot. And obviously Rebus has changed as well. And that's clearly important to you because we all know there are plenty of series where the character essentially stands still and not only doesn't grow old, but doesn't change, doesn't develop. Clearly that's important to you as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, I thought, you know, if I'm going to write about how Edinburgh and Scotland are changing through time, how can my character stand still? Yeah. So I decided that Rebus would age in real time. And that has given me a lot of problems. Um such as enforced retirement, um, you know, when it was time for him to retire, but I wasn't done with him. And now that he has retired and, and he can no longer rejoin the police in any way, shape or form, that gives me new challenges. But I quite like that. I like the fact that, you know, each new book, people say, how do you keep a series fresh? How do you keep a series fresh? Each new book to me feels like a standalone novel because the characters have changed. You know, time has moved on and they are different characters from the ones we met a book ago. Yeah. And so Rebus's health will have, will have declined. And he's not as fit as he once was. He can't chase suspects anymore. Now he's no longer a cop. You go, okay, so that gives him challenges. Um, things he can't do. Um, he's got to think of new ways of, of, of investigating something. Um, how can he cajole to get into a police investigation because he still feels like he is a detective or he's got some value in the world as a detective. So that gives me challenges and that that's, keeps you on your toes. 
yeah. and it does keep the series fresh. And so, but the thing, is, the only problem with that is you've got to remember. Oh right, he's got a dog. I gave him a dog two yeah. weeks ago. Okay, he's got, a, and I forgot the dog in this new book. Brillo the dog, yeah. bless. Um, I was about 100 pages in, I thought, oh God, I forgot to put the dog in, I had to go back. And now, of course, I've given them some health issues, so the yeah. next book, I've got to remember that, and the dog. So you don't have, you're not one of these writers that has the big dossier. I've not got the you, big dossier. No big dossier. No, no, I just, I, I just I, you know, I, I, trial and error, trial and error, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, first draft, oh, I can fix that. Yeah. I'll fix so the eighth book, uh, Black and Blue, is when things really sort of took off, won the gold dagger. Did that feel like a kind of vindication for sticking at it? I mean, had you kind of come close to knocking it on the head before then? Oh, Seven, yeah. yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was mid-list. I was, I was irredeemably mid-list, um, which means that the publisher is, is selling enough copies that they still want to publish you, but not enough copies that they're getting very excited about you. Or spending money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I'd, I'd, you know, and all the previous Rebus novels had been leading up to that one. I mean... When I was writing, I thought this is a much bigger book. I'm more confident now. Um, thematically, a bigger book. Geographically, it's moving all over the place. Um, and structurally, it was just a much bigger story, a much chunkier story. So I knew that I'd written a great book. But I remember my pup, my agent um, sending it to the publisher and them going, "Yeah, it's another Rebus book," you know. Um, but he kind of persuaded them. He said, "No, look, come on, this is a, this is a step. This is a, a, a step change." And then when it I think it was published in January, and Marcel Berlin's in the Times said, I won't read a better crime novel this year. And that was in January. And then November comes along and it wins a gold dagger. And we were vindicated then. And that gave me a, a boost because I was getting a bit desperate, you know, that I wasn't making enough money to. I was writing two books a year at that stage. I was writing a Jack Harvey thriller because nobody wanted two Rebus books a year. But the Rebus books weren't selling enough to make me a, enough money to live on. And suddenly I was a, a father with two kids and, and my youngest kid had special needs. And I'm thinking, you know, and we were living in France and I couldn't speak much French. And I just felt like the world, you know, I was having panic attacks and taking our little douche of driving it through the, the empty roads of rural southwest France and just screaming in the middle of the night, you know, because I couldn't sleep and I was just, uh, I, was on, I felt like I was on fire. Um, and so things relaxed a little bit after that, and I thought. But okay, did I know what did I'm you doing. feed that into the book? Yeah, did you feel that Channeled it went it. into yeah. the book. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit in um, Black and Blue where Rebus is fighting his best friend Jack Morton, and they're sort of punching each other to a standstill in the middle of the night in the middle of Edinburgh, and they're on their hands and knees crying and snot coming out of their noses and everything, gasping for breath, and that was kind of me just channeling all of that. I was giving Rebus a beating because I felt like life was giving me one, you right. know. And it did make it a bigger, angrier book, I think. The fact that I was going through all this stuff with my youngest son being diagnosed and being in a foreign country where I couldn't actually understand what the specialists were trying to tell me. Um, and then, you know, driving home with my wife and us trying to deal with it. And then I'd go upstairs to the attic um, and sit down with my old battered computer and suddenly I was God, you know? And I could, I could channel it all into this book and make Rebus a punch bag. Well, as, as God, you have... Uh You've got Rebus, but obviously a character like Rebus needs an antagonist who's equally as kind of charismatic and interesting. And Rebus has got that with, with Big J Cafferty. Now, how, how did you go about... How many books into the series was it before Cafferty appeared? Cafferty appears in a cameo in book three. Right. So Rebus was done in London solving a, a crime, but I needed to get him up to Glasgow um, to get a clue. And I thought, why is he going to Glasgow? He must be given evidence in a court case. Who's he giving evidence against? I don't know, a Glasgow gangster. And that's where Big J.R. Cafferty came from, and he was based on two or three fairly real-life Glasgow gangsters. And he's got two completely different backstories. If you read the, uh, the, the early books, um, he grew up in Glasgow, 
And in the later books, I forgot that. And in the later books, he grows up in Edinburgh. Okay. So there's two completely Dead different... Not having that dossier again. Yeah, yeah I know. The... Yeah, I know. Just, you know. There's lots of mistakes like that in the books. Lots and lots of mistakes like that in the books. Um, people go from being detective sergeant to detective constable and back to sergeant again in yeah. the blink of an eye. You know, Nobody notices these things. But anyway, where did he come from? I mean, partly he was a homage to, to Lawrence Block's um, character, Mick Ballou. Partly, as you have said, you need a, an antagonist. You need someone that the uh, detective can, can rub, up, up, rub up against. And... He just got under my skin, you know, and having have that little cameo in one book, I thought, oh, I like you, you're an intriguing character, and you can be my kind of Satan figure, tempting Rebus to the dark side. Um, and so his role grew, yeah. you know, and to the extent that now the books mostly now are about these two old men, Rebus and, and Cafferty, um, trying to make sense of the world around them as it changes and trying to work out if they have any role left to play. Well, I, d I definitely get the sense, especially in the more recent books, that, that this kind of dance of death between Rebus and Cafferty are, are the bits you really enjoy writing. That, that yeah. you know, I, I'm guessing at that because that... But the problem with Rebus is he's such a big character that when he enters a scene, everybody else disappears. You know, it's very hard to keep readers interested in Siobhan Clark and Malcolm Fox because they're just so fantastic, you know, they're just so gripped by Rebus. When Cafferty joins in, then suddenly this Rebus has got someone who's his match, you know, uh, and so readers really love that. And I love writing those scenes. It's great. It's great. And, you know, Cafferty lives in my house. Yes, I, not I noticed that. <laughs> a psychologist could make much of the fact that Rebus lives in the street I lived in when I was a poor student and uh, Cafferty lives in the house I live in and I'm a successful author. <laughs> well we've got plenty more to talk about but before we do that we come to our regular feature in which a stab in the dark's roving reporter and man with a spyglass Paul Hirons goes out and about. Over to you Paul. Yes thanks Mark you said it I do try and get out and about to all the major crime events in the UK and beyond and back in May I attended the annual crime fest in Bristol where I managed to catch up with a British author who, with his fifth book, The Intrusions, has been scaring the bejesus out of people left, right and centre. Yes, The Intrusions is a procedural, but it also infuses scary modern technology that feels especially timely in these days of hacking, data mining and online stalking. So here's Stav Sherez explaining to me exactly how he got started with The Intrusions. It started off, I wanted to write classic serial killer novel. We all love, you know, Thomas Harris and all the classic Jeffrey Deaver. Um, but I wanted to do something new with it. And originally, I was just thinking about a backpacker's hostel in Bayswater. I was thinking what it's like to be a kind of transient population backpackers. If they go missing, no one's really going to know because no one knows where they're supposed to be at any given time. And so that was the location. That really was the start of the book. That's all I knew was it was going to be a few people going missing from this backpackers hostel. And then I started writing it and I realised actually these days a serial killer or stalker you would be using technology to the max. They would be using computers, CCTV, all sorts of devices rather than hanging outside your window in, like in the old days. And so obviously I started researching that and I found out about this thing called ratting which is where through a program you can get into someone else's computer. So it's a bit like if you and me talk to a help desk and we can't figure something out, they'll take over 
our computer for a bit, except of course this is non-consensual. And so they get into especially women's computers, turn on their webcams and watch them and film them. And I thought there's nothing creepier than that. The intrusion of privacy, the kind of idea that even in your home, own home you're not safe anymore. And that's the ultimate fear, isn't it? That your home, your sanctuary is being invaded, not by a physical presence, but by something or someone unseen. It sounds as scary as you like. I know, absolutely, and it scared me. I mean, the more I read about it, the more I realised, and obviously since I've written the book, through all these hacks and the election stuff last year in America, we've seen how prevalent this is. But also, I mean, yes, as you say, it's the idea that the internet... The internet has this weird duality. So people think it offers them anonymity to do bad things, but also the police use it very much to track people doing bad things. So we see that with paedophiles very much. So in the old days, they would gather in kind of basements and all that, and it was very hard to infiltrate and track them. Same with terrorist cells. Now, because they do all their commerce on the internet, they believe it's very anonymous, but the police are using technology now in just the same way as the perpetrators are. They're realising this is a great way to track people, to catch people. CCTV helps us a lot. So, yeah, so it's really terrifying because no one's safe anymore unless you have no electronic devices. Even the CIA, I heard, have resorted to pen and paper for the really secret stuff because they know anything can be hacked. But what about the link between crime fiction and technology? Does the rampant use of the internet herald a new age in the genre? Where can writers go with this? Oh, we're going far into the future. I mean, technology is, as we know, people our age have seen technology expand at a massively exponential rate. And there is a kind of mathematical law about every 18 months, technology um, transistors double, computers double. So it's going to get much more prevalent. It's going to be much more the fabric of our lives. And for me at first, you know, writing the first two books... It was like mobile phones, all these things kind of get in the way of the old, you're stranded, you can't call for help. But then I realised you can use it to your advantage. These are great new tools for crime writers, you know, books with tracking technology, the police using it, perpetrators, serial killers, stalkers using it. That hasn't been done before because these things didn't exist in the world. So I realised actually writing a modern novel is so exciting because we have all these new possibilities that 10 years ago weren't around. But in terms of the future, it's very scary, but also very hopeful. I mean, technology in medical stuff has allowed us to make huge breakthrough. The Genome Project has allowed us probably in 50 years to beat most diseases. And again, it's through computing. Um, so like any weapon, it all depends on which direction it's turned in. Thanks, Dav. Um, I think I'm going to have to ditch my smartphone and my laptop and my tablet. Actually, while I'm at it, I might as well ditch my ZX Spectrum. My tea's made and anything that's got to plug in the house. Because once you peer down into this rabbit hole of this technology, it can get very scary very quickly. And that word ratting, it gives me the creeps. And it's, it's certainly a word that I'm not going to forget in a while. And with that, it's back to Mark in the studio. Thanks ever so much, Paul. So, Ian. 30 books in as many years. That sounds like a hell of a work. Well, it is a hell of a work ethic. Where's that come from? Uh, yeah, I know. Protestant, Protestant working class work ethic. Who knows? Who knows? You know, it should be enjoyable, shouldn't it, Mark? I mean, that's the thing about this. So I, I, I did a, a stint recently at University of East Anglia, visiting professor of creative writing. And when I did the one-on-one tutorials, I said, you know, try and have a bit of fun. 
Because I think people forget that writing should be fun, and yeah. really, we're we're you know we're doing what all kids do. We're we're making up stories with our imaginary friends and hanging out with them, and doing role playing games, almost like cowboys and Indians or what have you. You know, goodies and baddies, uh, and 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 so you know that's I'm creating this lovely alternate universe where I can have huge adventures with my invisible friends. Um, so it should be You're fun. You're still essentially making those comics yeah, really. like you were as a I kid. Know. I know. And, you know, one of the biggest buzzes that I got was when DC Comics said to me, hey, have you ever thought of writing a comic? And I did a comic for them. I did Constantine um, Hellblazer, uh, just a one-off, a 200-page one-off, and I loved it. I just loved doing it. And I, I, Maybe I'll do more comics in the future. I don't know. Although just recently I've had a stint as a stand-up, and I've quite enjoyed that, Mark. Well, you've kept this under your hands. Yeah, really. It was, for a, it was for a charity thing. Fred McCauley was doing a charity thing at the stand in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago, and he said, come along and do five minutes. So I did. I did a good five. Yeah. And did, were you were you bitten by the bug? Is it, it like was pretty, it was a good when you come it's off that a stage, buzz, isn't it? Yeah, when you come off that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you go, geez. I mean, I've done that's it. Five minutes is what I can do. How um, comedians can end up doing ten and twenty and thirty in an hour and an yeah. hour and a half. Uh, Lord alone knows. Um, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It's fun hanging out. And you know, comedians and, and authors, we we seem to get on pretty well. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you talk about. That it's got to be fun, and clearly it's got to be fun. But there are so many more demands on your time, as the books do better and better. And so you know, not just the touring and the events and visiting foreign countries, radio and TV and journalism and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it eats into writing time. Right? Oh yeah, it all does. It all does, and it's a catch twenty two. I mean, the other thing is that writers usually aren't naturally gregarious people. You know, we're the kind of weird, shy kids at school who would like to go back to their bedroom and sit and listen to Pink Floyd while writing poetry. And then suddenly so you, you lock yourself up for months and you write the book and then you're released into the world. And it is like Jekyll and Hyde. You've suddenly got to go off and be gregarious and outgoing. You've got to be charming at 7pm, having travelled all day to get there, you know, to your audience of 30 or whatever. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about the writing process. I know that you write a first draft very quickly. Um, I remember doing an event with you a year or two ago when you walked on stage. Do you remember this with a plastic bag? And I was like, what's in the plastic bag? And it was the book. It was the new book. And yeah, I just printed out my first draft or whatever it was. And people in the audience were going, the new Rebus novel in a bag. Um, so you write that first draft very quickly. Then do you kind of stop and take stock and go, right, what do I need to do with it now? Yeah, well, let me think. I mean, the first draft usually is 30 or 40 days. Um, but it's rough. It's rough. There's big chunks that... You know, I'm going, I'll fix this later. I'll fix it later. So you just keep moving forward. Yeah, so you just keep, go, bit about cafeteria here, yeah, crack on. Kind you know? of, kind of. Things like, you know, oh, this is the, this must be the guy who did it or this must be somebody who was there in the hotel that night. So go back in the second draft and make it so. Um, so, I mean, this one, I mean, the latest one, Rather Be the Devil. I mean, I was two thirds of the way through the first draft before I worked out that a very minor character was actually a major character and was the kind of the brains of the, 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 the kind of operation. Um, I didn't know that because when I start the first draft, I know as little as my detective. I am a detective. I'm making sense of this story and these characters and how they all fit together. Um, no planning, no big whiteboard. Not with... a, huge, I mean, a couple of sheets of A4 usually is what I've got yeah. uh, of where I think the plot should go. And it almost never goes there. Because when I start writing, the story has a different idea of a better place to go or a better direction to take to get to the ending. So I don't know the ending when I start, and quite a few crime writers don't. Everybody goes, come on, you must. But I don't, you know, people think you, you start at the end and work backwards. A lot of us don't. A lot of us just do it linearly from beginning to end. And that's fun for me. It's, it's, it's great. If I knew what was going to happen, I wouldn't need to write the story. But you know the title. 
I've always got to have a title before yeah. I start, but it isn't. I mean, sometimes it's a working title. Sometimes the publisher poo-poo's it. Um, and I keep using the same title, and they go, no, no, you still can't have that one. Oh, wait, well, what's the title? Is there a title you've been trying to get away oh, for dark, a number I, of years? I, I mean, yeah, Dark Entries I had for ages, and I kept calling books Dark Entries, and they kept saying, no, you can't have that. So when I did my um, graphic novel for uh, for DC, I said, can I call it Dark Entries? And they went, oh, that's a great title, yeah. So I got, I did get it used eventually. It's song by Bauhaus. Anyway, um, yeah, so the first draft is rough and ready. Then I go away and I sort of forget about it for a while, then read it through, make notes, second draft. And somewhere between first draft and third draft, I'll have done the research. Okay. So I'll say, oh, Rebus goes here, so I'll, I'll have to drive there. Or Rebus goes and talks to this person, so I need to find out about that subject. So I do all of that. Um, and the thing, that speeds everything up. Doing the research after the first draft, you know what you need to know, yeah. not what you might need to know. So you're not crowbarring stuff into narrative that you don't need. Yeah, because you've done, you've spent weeks you know, researching some topic and you want to show people you've done that, so you put in far too much detail. We've all read those books. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so let's talk a bit about uh, Rather Be The Devil then, um, which is from a John Martin. It's a John Martin song. John Martin gets several mentions in this book, even more than he normally does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and well, I mean, music, he's, you listen to music when you write, which a lot of writers don't. Yeah, uh, some do though, some do. But I mean, I only listen to specific kinds of music. I, it, has to, it can't have lyrics. I couldn't listen to John Martin. I'd be too busy listening to the words, and I wouldn't be writing my own. It's just to create an atmosphere. Brian Eno ambient stuff is very good for that. A little bit of prog, like Tangerine Dream, can be good for that. Modern electronica. Um, just something that creates a little bubble in which I can, you know, pretend I'm in a different universe. I'm in this kind of alternate reality. I it's fun. And if I go up to... We've got a house in Cromarty way in the north of Scotland where I sometimes go and write the first draft, and I'll take about a dozen CDs with me to listen to while I'm writing. Uh, and it's always, you know, Brian Eno and Tangerine Dream are always in the mix somewhere. So this in this book, is, uh, uh, 30 years of crime fighting has really taken its toll on Rebus, and he's not, you know, he's not the man he was in a lot of ways physically. He's, he's you know, he's off the fags, and he's drinking low-alcohol lager, which is, that's that's one of the major tragic moments in modern crime fiction. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> it's I mean, I, I just love when he's, there's a there's a guy standing outside the Oxford bar tapping in the yeah, window, smoking, tapping. tapping in the window. That's probably me tapping in the window trying to get him outside for a cigarette, and he's desperately trying not to smoke. Yeah, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, he's got this thing, COPD. Um, I consulted with a friend of my wife's who's a doctor, and I said, what would you expect Rebus to present if he walked into your surgery? And she came up with some pretty gruesome stuff. And uh, COPD was one of the least of the things he could have had. But yeah, just something to remind him that he's mortal. Yeah. You know, and something that's going to slow him down a bit and he has to take a little bit more care of himself. Whether or not that's going to be lasting or not, I couldn't say. I mean, the chances are that he's going to be a recidivist and he'll be back on the cigarettes and the booze any minute now. Well, just going, going back a few books to exit music, when, you know, that's the end of Rebus, you, you, you suddenly discover that you've got to retire him. You know, that moment when somebody goes, no, no, you, you, 30 years. is <laughs> um, Did you genuinely think that was the end of him at that point? You yeah. start writing the Malcolm Fox books. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and Miranda said to me, my wife said to me, she said, uh, oh, you've, you know, that's it, you're done with Rebus, you can write any kind of book you want now, you're free to write any kind of book. What do you want to write? And I said, nah, I'd quite like to write about cops in Edinburgh, you know. <laughs> And that's where Malcolm Fox came from, was the anti-Rebus. Anti yeah. He was, you know, he was the opposite of Rebus in so many ways that no one was going to think it was Rebus 2.0 or Rebus Light. Um, and I quite enjoyed the Fox books, but then I got an idea for a cold case, and I thought, oh, so it's a cold case, so who's going to be doing that? And there's a bunch of retired cops in Edinburgh, there used to be, who worked on the cold cases, and I thought, okay, well, 
I can invent a retired cop, but I've already got one. So that was Rebus back, and it was quite nerve-wracking. I mean, for various reasons. Number one, I wasn't sure his voice would still be there because I'd not written about him for five years and hadn't really thought about him for about five years. Um, and number two, I thought everybody's going to say you've just brought him back because your other books weren't a success. And I knew that wasn't true. But it was nice to have him back, and, and he just kept, he came leaping out of the little cell had kept him in my head and he was just he was just back in action again and then I suddenly thought oh hang on a minute there's interesting things to be done with Fox now you know Fox and Rebus can rub up against each other oh that's fan that's fantastic in the last few books it's almost it's it's I'm not saying Fox is turning into Rebus but Rebus is you know certainly influencing Fox isn't yeah. he and yeah uh, but, but but you know Fox is a pen pusher by heart I mean in his nature he's a he's a, he's a yes man and so I've sent him off to the police headquarters in uh, in leafy Lanarkshire because um, that's what would happen to him. Of course, that's changing his relationship with Siobhan Clark because she's the one who should have got that promotion. Yeah. And she knows it. So that's changed their relationship and it changes his relationship with Rebus, obviously, as well. So, you know, it's uh, the, the kind of little dance that goes on between these three or four major characters, you know, Ad Cafferty, and that gives you the, 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 the foursome. Um, you know, I just love it. I love the way that they, they, they change. And... Um, it's a challenge because you go, well, how you know, if you're new to the series, if you're coming in at book number 21 or 22, you think, well, how much do you need to give the reader? And Larry Block used to be guilty of giving the reader too much. You remember, Scudder, you'd always get told why he left the police. You'd always get told about him tithing. Yeah, he'd and, and, and re-describing the characters yeah. physically yeah. and that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, the kind of story of why he became a private eye or had to leave the police. And you go, yeah, I know that, Larry. I've read all your books. You know, so there's a kind of... It's a really, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a, a balance challenge. to be struck, isn't it? It's there? a real balance. You know, you don't, want, you don't want to bore readers, but you want new readers not to be put off. No, but you've got to honour those people that have been with the series all along, because they're going, I know what that means, I know who that character is, you know. Yeah. So you're genuinely saying that when, in, in the five years you weren't writing about Rebus, you're sitting having a, having a pint in the ox, you weren't catching him out the corner of your eye, yeah. he wasn't popping no. into your head. No, and... no, no. I mean, I, I think I'm very successful at not seeing the world through his eyes when I'm not writing a Rebus novel. Right. Um, oh yeah, people would keep coming up to me all the time. You know, when's he coming back? When are we going to see him? What's he up to? Um, fans all around the world, you know, what's he doing? And they would come to the Oxford bar looking for Rebus. I mean, they weren't looking for me, they were looking for him. Um, I have to disappoint them. But anyway, he's back for a little while now. But Is he? Is he? Because I did read an interview last week. Yeah, where but how you much said, longer? I don't know. You, I'm not sure. You know, you know, I feel like it's one more. You know, as long as there's one more. I will be reminding you of that in 10 yeah. years when it's the 40th yeah, know, anniversary of Rebus. And I'll be, in, I'll be in my Zimmer. I'll be shuffling along in my Zimmer. Now, well, uh, he'll be in his 90s. Oh, my God. Uh, back on the booze and the fags. Um, now, I guess one of the things that helps to keep a series alive, obviously, is, is TV adaptations. And, and there have been several, you know, different incarnations of, well, two. But, yes. Um, John Hanna and Ken, Ken Stott. And I know you don't watch them. Mm. You're in them. You're in a few. I'm in two. In yeah. two, as is Marillion from Fish, which is one of my uh, favourite. No, Fish pictures. from Marillion. Fish, Fish from, from sorry, Marillion. Marillion from, yeah, yeah, Fish. Yeah, Fish is the he's the barkeeper in the first one, Black and Blue. Yeah, but, you still, to, but you've never watched them. I've never watched them. No, no, no. Um, I had I a little know, cameo in a couple you, of them. How you got, maintain I've that got, level got, of got, willpower? I've got the DVDs on the shelves, and one of these days I'll probably will watch them. Yeah, there's TV interest at the moment. There's always a bit of TV interest, and I think the producers have agreed, yeah, really, we need to do this long form. You okay. know, take one book and do it properly. Do it over three hours or six hours or something. Um, but whether it will get made or not, I don't know. And is, and is Ken Stott still your... I know Ken's keen to do it. I think he was interviewed in a newspaper a while ago. and, and he, he Well, I, I mean, he's, I think he's always been the, the, a brilliant Rebus. I mean, I remember, I, remember, uh, I remember having a drink with you in Edinburgh 
long time ago, just after the, you'd done the deal to make the John Hanna ones. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think John Hanna's going to be great. Um, and obviously, you know, the thing is being made because it's John Hanna and he's obviously he's going to play Rebus. And I remember going home and my kids were watching The Mummy. And yeah. suddenly there's this character going, oh, look, a sarcophagus. And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. XSAS? I don't, I'm not quite sure I buy it. But yeah. then Ken Stott, Ken Stott was just Rebus. But did, did, you see, did you see John Hanna in A Touch of Cloth? Yes. Playing a cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Could, he could do it now. Oh, yeah, no, he's, well, he's, got, a, he's got to chunk up a bit. I think he's got to chunk up a bit. Um, now, you've see, obviously, you've seen the whole landscape of crime fiction and crime drama change over 30 years. It is what you just hinted at, that kind of long-form thing, one of the major changes. Obviously, there's Scandi Noir and all that kind of stuff, and now psychological thrillers are, are everywhere. Have you seen these things come and go, and where do you think the next, the next thing's coming from? Yeah, I mean, it used to be, didn't it, that it was all about the serial detective, you know, it was Wexford and it was Morse and they worked on TV, they worked in books, that was what sold. It was Reg Hill with D.L. and Pasco. Um, and now we seem to have gone to standalones. I've seen this, the serial killer come and go. Um, you know, Hannibal Lecter came along and that was a huge for a while. Everybody had to have these Rococo serial killers, me included, um, a couple of times in the books. Uh, What's next? Who knows? I mean, all these young whippersnappers, Mark, coming mm -hmm. along now mm -hmm. and, and writing these, these books and, uh, and, you know, creeping up the charts, if not racing up the charts everywhere, all around the world. And publishers now much more open to fiction and translation. Yeah. Um, because they've seen that Scandi crime works. Uh, and so they're looking for the next culture, the next country where they can take stuff from. But with so much coming, all, all these young whippersnappers, whatever, you're up there at the top of the tree. Are you, are you still conscious of needing to adapt and change and keep doing different things? And No, not really. I mean, I, you know, if I thought I could write a high-concept thriller, maybe I would. But, you know, I, I just don't get high-concept ideas, yeah. you know, that can elevate a pitch. You can sum it up in six words or less. I just can't. I don't, I, I, that's not how my brain works. Uh, it works in a much more kind of convoluted fashion than that. Okay. I've got a vague theme I want to explore. I've got some kind of plot that allows me to do that. And it, is, it isn't a kind of, ah, and there's a twist at the end. And you've got some characters. You've got some characters that yeah, you Yeah, I've got some meaty characters. Into, I mean, you know. But, you know, the, the next book, uh, when I sit down to start it, I'll, the first thing I'll do is, okay, what am I going to write about? Does that feel like a Rebus book? And, you know, occasionally you might get an idea and you go, oh, that isn't a Rebus book. So then you write the book, you know. I mean, Doors Open, I loved doing heist. I love heists, and Doors Open was a heist. And the nice thing about heists is you don't need any murders. Yeah. You've got tension, you've got drama, you've got all kinds of uh, human conflict and emotional conflict, but you don't need a body count. And I just loved that. I loved writing a book with no... No murders. No murders at all. Um, well, just before we wrap things up, let's talk a bit about the Rebus Festival, which is happening this July in Edinburgh. Um, what can we expect from that? I'm guessing music. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's one weekend at the end of June, beginning of July, and there's going to be a ton of stuff. There's one music night, yes, at the Queen's Hall. Got a couple of uh, artists, three actually, three bands or three artists come along. Music I like, music that Rebus would like. One of them played with Jackie Levin, who's a musician, was a musician friend of mine, died a few years ago. Um, we worked together, made an album together, and so there'll be a few stories, a few anecdotes about Jackie told by the two of us. And then this musician, Michael Weston King, who you know very well, will do a few of his own songs and a few of Jackie's songs. You just said music I like, music Rebus likes. Is there any music Rebus likes? that you don't like? Well, he's a different generation from me. I've always got to be careful. You know, what would he be listening to? He'd be listening to the kind of mod era, the Who, which isn't my favourite Who period. You know, he'd be, he'd be listening to the earlier stuff. He'd be listening to very early kinks. Right. Um, I mean, there's, there's some stuff that he would listen to that I wouldn't listen to, but not much. But the thing is, but my musical taste has, has you know, evolved. 
and he probably hasn't bought an album since about 1975. So he's kind of stuck in that era. He's not going to be listening to Mogwai, is he? He's not going to listen to Mogwai. He doesn't listen, or The Cure, or Joy Division, right. uh, or Brian Eno, <laughs> or, or indeed Tangerine Dream. <laughs> so it's, I've got to always make sure it is his musical taste in the books and not mine. Well, now, as promised, in each episode, we ask our guests uh, to give us recommendations for a good read and a good watch. Ian, what have you read recently that you'd recommend to our listeners? What have I read recently that I would recommend to your listeners? Oh, my God. That's so tough. Uh, it's presumably very hard to find time to read, or do, are yeah. you kind of very regular? I'm I, I allowed an old book. Can you do yes. old books? Yeah, because I mean, I, I, I reread recently one of my all-time favourite novels, which is Bleak House by Charles Dickens, and and it's an extraordinary book. It's an extraordinary piece of work, and it's a detective story. It's a murder mystery and everything else, and there's lots of hidden identities, and there's a professional police officer called Bucket, Inspector Bucket, Inspector Bucket. Um, and, and he's just a terrific character, and he's, he feels very fresh and modern, his way of sort of using psychology to, to, get, his, uh, to get the evildoer is, is, is brilliant. And I was rereading it because I was having to give a talk on it um, to the Charles Dickens Society or some such, and it was just so much fun to reread it. So it's a big book you can lose yourself in. Mm. You can lose yourself in Charles Dickens's world. So I would always recommend that. Okay, well, there's there's uh, Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Now, what about something on TV that you've enjoyed? Um, I think I was I was in a minority here, and I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I, I started watching Taboo with Tom Hardy, mm-hmm. which was a kind of steampunk Dickens, really. You know, it was like London, but you know, warts and all, um, and it's sort of yeah, you know, bits of the supernatural in it and all kinds of things going on. Um, and Tom Hardy is hugely watchable, whatever he's in. Um, he's hugely watchable, but is he, is he hugely listenable? I have to, uh, I have to kind of have subtitles. I mean, clearly, massively charismatic. I'm like, yeah. I'm, but I'm like, hey, what did you say? No, I found it fine. I, 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 I found him quite easy. I mean, it wasn't like he was playing Bane. When he plays Bane, he's like, oh, it wasn't like that. You know, he was actually saying stuff out loud. Um, but I just thought it was great fun, and it was rip roaring, and it was just, you know, you could switch your brain off, just disengage your brain, and just enjoy. This guy who was just—he was—he was evil incarnate, um, but he was incredibly charismatic. Okay, well, two great recommendations there, and that's about it for the first episode of series two of A Stab in the Dark. You can watch episodes of Rebus on Alibi every Friday at 10 p.m., and then in July it'll switch to every Friday at 11 p.m. We'll be back again next time with more fantastic names from the worlds of crime fiction and crime drama. But in the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark, along with articles and some great book competitions, at uktv.co.uk/slash A Stab in the Dark, or get in touch with us on Twitter hashtag A Stab in the Dark. Plus, don't forget to review us on your podcast app. Your feedback really does make a difference. So please rate and review us if you can. But be nice. Politeness costs nothing, and I'm very easily upset. And just a quick reminder, you can watch the best crime drama every day on UK TV channels Alibi and Drama. So with that, it's a huge thank you to my very special guest, Ian Rankin, and thanks to our producers, Paul Hirons and Joel Porter. My name's Mark Billingham. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 